Hello, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, currently, we were reading The Baroque Cycle by Neil Stevenson, and uh, we're halfway through the the second volume, so we're halfway through the series, more or less. Um, so I'm picking up on page four twelve of the Confusion, which will take us, and we'll take we'll go through page four five twenty one. Or so. so a little bit of a shorter episode, just uh, me trying to divide up this book uh, in the ways that make the most sense. So we got a couple things going on in this part of the book. Uh, first, we have uh, the aftermath of Eliza's scheme to to bankrupt the, the von Heckelhaber family through this uh, scheme of having them deliver silver backed by French government debt to delivering it to England where it'd be turned into um, silver pennies at the English mint to pay French soldiers. It's a wonderful thought experiment on just like the liquidity of money and how currency and financial transactions went beyond the state at that point. Uh, I suppose now states during wartime have more effective controls of banking and things like that. But, you know, as long as everyone got their piece, as long as everyone in the transaction was able to, you know, get get some money for themselves, it worked. And, and the war was just a sideline kind of stuff on the sideline. It, it was secondary to the, to the financial machinations of various people. So anyways, uh, uh, where we left off is the battle in the English Channel, which basically uh, ended the chance of a French invasion. But still, Eliza goes to London to cash in these bills of exchange that she acquired, which would allow her to basically collect this silver. And it was a huge amount. It was like 500,000 500, French leave over five payments, uh, just a massive amount of, of, of money. Um, now, not all of it comes because some of it is seized by John Bart uh, uh, as a privateer, seized by him and captured. So that some of that silver, I think it's like four fifths of this shipment, ends up actually in, you know, back in France as, you know, contraband from from this privateer John Bart, uh, and then Elias is picking up essentially the rest there. So in uh, in London, she meets up with uh, I think it's the Marquess of Ravenscar. Yeah, it's the Marquess of Ravenscar who she was earlier flirting with and communicating with over letters, and and he basically takes her around London, including to the Exchange Alley where all these bank banking offices are. And she goes into the the house of of the von Heckelhabers and brings out you know, chest after chest of this silver, so much so it like strains the card. And she's like, this is just one of five shipments. Although a lot of those other shipments don't make it there. And and so she literally has this uh, money, which was intended to pay these French troops, but isn't going to. Now, how does this ruin the von Heckelhabers? Well, a couple things. One is because this the von Heckelhabers thought there was going to be a increase in silver prices um she essentially shorts out that she, in fact she that's one reason she meets with the marquis of ravenscar because he has a lot of silver and she's like wait a few days and then sell dump your silver right because the silver price is going to go down because it's the market's going to be flooded with all this extra silver you know because of the failed everyone was buying silver in preparation of this french invasion it doesn't happen so it's going to bottom out the price of silver so sell it you can make it worse. And so the Von Heckelhapers are going to end up with overpaying for all the silver. They basically get shorted on the on silver. 
Um, and the other thing is she's going to, uh, later on, she goes to Gresham's College and meets with uh, agents of the Von Heckelhabers. And she basically says, you still owe like four shipments. And they're like, well, it was captured by privateers. She's like, it doesn't matter. I have these bills of exchange and you have to pay up. She says, but I'll, I'll help you out. Instead of paying back um, with, with silver, what the French really need is to rebuild their fleet. And she's already been engaged in this Baltic trade for t- lumber. She says, just send us 400 French leave worth of timber from the Baltic. Uh, you buy it and send it there. So basically, this essentially bankrupts the von Heckelhabers. Here's how she explains it. She says, the purpose for which the silver is intended no longer exists, but the bills have been presented and accepted and must be paid in London before day's end if the reputation of the house of Hackelhaber is to survive. I propose that we convert the transaction into another form of payment. France no longer has need of the silver, but she does have a perpetual need of timber more so than ever. Now that so much of her fleet has been burned in the harbor of Chorbonne and Le Hogue. She, she purchases timber through the Compagnie du Noir, Company of the North, uh, which deals with a network of Huguenot merchants in the North. Those same houses maintain bureaus within a stone's throw where I stand. Indeed, I was on my way there just now. I chanced to meet Monsieur Durant, who was a local factor in such concerns. So she says, just go across the street and go to this these Huguenot agents and buy 500 leaves worth of, worth of timber and deliver it to France. So all of this basically ruins them because they have to fulfill these legal obligations. They can't just forfeit their debt without ruining the, the name of the, of the house. But the house already gets destroyed anyways. I guess it must exist, continue to exist in some form. But the institution can't survive a blow to its reputation that would come from basically def- uh, refusing to pay the French government. To sum up here, and this is the the banker says, we are to understand, this is the London factor of the Hackle Habers. Are we to understand that La France is to receive, in addition to the 100,000 leaves in silver we've already delivered to you, 400,000 leaves worth of silver as booty in Dunkirk, as well as 400,000 leaves worth of Baltic timber in exchange for nothing more than 500,000 leaves in French government obligations in Lyon? Another problem with this is the market for French government debt isn't that good. So at one point, there's a letter exchange where she says, like, you could probably sell one leave of, you know, French government debt for like, you know, one fifth the value of it or something. So it's it's already kind of not fully trustworthy. Um, but but that's that this this is a huge blow to that that family. Now, the final scene we get with Eliza is with Bob Shafto, and she essentially breaks up with him. She says, like, you know, yeah, you got me pregnant earlier. There was a scene earlier where she was trying that. But the kid miscarried, and you pursue your Abigail. Now, this is essentially a lie. She's, she has a kid later on, which I think is Bob Shafto. She's just sort of lying to him to encourage him to go seek out Abigail and finish his quest to do that and, you know, not get entangled with her I suppose it's kind of a it's kind of a heartbreaking moment but um, but I guess Eliza's um, she's kind of moving into a new stage of her life right where she's going to kind of be established as this wife of Etienne Dakashan she's going to not spend that much time with him she's going to do a lot of stuff in Germany with uh, little Caroline uh, Sophie's I guess granddaughter grandniece maybe now let's get all this straight. Uh, Sophie, of course, is the uh, the 
princess of, of Hanover and the Palatinate, right? Something like that. So her son is George the First, um, and her other kid, Sophie Charlotta. So George the First, eventually later king of England, uh, is her son. So he's going to be the one who's going to eventually, in the Hanoverian succession, secede, even though Sophie wanted to. Um, no, Caroline ends up being the wife of of George the Second. Right. But anyways, she's just a little girl at this point and, and Eliza begins to to uh, tutor her and, and interact with Leibniz a little bit more and continue her business engagements and things like that. She this is like her high point, the high point of her kind of political life is this is this scheme. Uh, to bring all this extra money into France to help with the war effort and raise her status, make a lot of money on the side while doing it, destroy her enemy, uh, Lothar von Hackelhaber. And, and that's that. So there's going to be other great Sophie or Eliza moments in the in the story, but more or less her, I think her story kind of slows down. It becomes much more about uh, about Jack and from this point on, Jack and Daniel um, in the second half of the story, which might be a shame for some people, but we, Eliza doesn't go away. But I, I just think she's, she kind of takes a, she becomes a second tier sort of character at this point. Anyways, now we finally, after like 150 pages or more, shift to Bonanza. We go back to book four, Bonanza. Um, and it, we pick up three years after the, the heist in Cairo and the stealing of the gold. And we are in uh, Ahmedabad in the Mughal Empire. Uh, so it's September 1693. Um, and Jack is, is there. The cabal's been split. Uh, first, they were attacked by pirates, Mal Malabar pirates, um, including this, this, one, um, this one kind of amazing pirate queen we get, to have a, we get to know a lot more about later in the book. Her name's Queen Katatl. She's got this really dark skin, like she's like from the, the islands around uh, South Asia or something. But anyway, she stole the gold. She just stole it from them and they got dispersed like jack's working essentially as a veterinarian um others were kind of press ganged into the into the mughal military by local kings there's actually jack talks about this at one point he tells the story of the intelligence test where they were put in a in a one by one they were put in a in a room with a with a musket and the ball and the powder and everything and Jack couldn't figure out how to do it. He obviously knows how to shoot a gun, but he pretended he didn't. So he failed the intelligence test and he was let go. Those who passed the intelligence test and were able to fire the gun were recruited into the Mughal military. So some of them didn't make it that way. Others were just split up. Um, really kind of the set, one of the centerpieces of this cabal at this point, what's left of it is Surendranath, who is, is a man of some reputation in India and some wealth and has family connections. And he's sort of helping keep Jack alive, giving him jobs and positions and things like that. So there's some really nice stuff here about like, but just, just a description of India under the Mughal Empire is, is, is great, but also the political situation in India, where of course the Mughals are Muslims and they conquered India. They're not the first Muslims to conquer much of India. You had the, Del, uh, the Delhi Sultanates and things, but they controlled basically all of India, at least nominally, but at the local level, the, just like in Europe, Right. I think there's a kind of contrast here with Europe is there's all these local polities. Right. So like Europeans like to think their system was so modern. 
and the rest of the world wasn't, right? But at this time, it's very similar, actually, where just like, remember, Eliza trying to buy the timber in France? She couldn't because of all the local politics and gangs and highwaymen and things like that. It's the same situation in India, essentially. Um, now, of course, a lot of autonomy is given to the Marathas, who are the Hindu princes. Um, and so the Mughals tried really hard to, to keep the Hindus in line, but also by giving them a lot of concessions. Isn't, don't they also create like a new religion? Uh, isn't Sikhism kind of an effort to create a unity between Islam and, and Hinduism in a way? So uh, some of the Mughal empires really were interested in religion and philosophy and married uh, Hindu princesses and things like this. So there was this effort to keep uh, this very fragile relationship intact. Of course, the Mughals were a Muslim minority ruling over a largely Hindu majority. But you had a lot of just a lot of local kings, right? And sometimes these kings would basically be indifferentiable from from like bandits, right? Where they would just plague the roads, right? It's just like, you know, you got a trade route, you got a road. And a merchant wants to get from point A to point B, right? And as he goes, it, the road's very useful. The road's wonderful because it allows that transport, right? But along the way you run into a bandit right so the bandit says give me your money or give me a big part of your money give me a bunch of your money and i'll let you go maybe give you 50 percent or whatever so you do that right now eventually a strong state can just push out those bandits and of course they pay for it by putting a little post somewhere on the road so when people are traveling the government comes out and says give me some of your money and if you don't you can't pass I mean, they essentially function as bandits, but they just they just replace them, right? So the line between the state and banditry is pretty subtle here. And we even see that in France, how the French king was just essentially looting Eliza and looting a lot of the nobility to pay for their war effort. Um, so anyways, that's the political situation here. And they're, tr they're talking about doing like this trade route to Delhi. Um, how is it pronounced in this book? I don't know if this was the real name of it or if this is just an invention. Shah Jahanabad is the term that's used throughout the book. It's essentially Delhi. It's the capital of the, of the Mughals. And they're trying to... And basically, uh, Surendranath and Jack and some other members of the Cabal come up with this scheme to essentially clear the road to Delhi uh, from these Maratha bandits and highwaymen. And Surrender Nuts like, well, you're going to need an army to do that. And Jack's like, no, I, I, I know how to do this. And then you get uh, this really, really fun uh, moment where he starts, some of the cabal gets recollected together and they begin to make, uh, make phosphorus out of urine. This is something Jack learned how to do back in Germany with his, when he was learning about phosphorus from Enoch Root way back in book two in The King of the Vagabonds. And the plan is basically to buy up and collect as much urine as possible and boiling it down to phosphorus using a chemical process that he understood, but no one else really did. So you had this, this uh, natural philosophical or alchemical, depending on your point of view, uh, method for extracting phosphorus from urine. Now, you can really do this. I don't know the process for it. I was looking this up when I was reading this, and there's actually people proposing, because there's, I guess, a shortage of phosphorus in in the world actually using this process of of melting down urine to make phosphorus so it, it actually can be done and and jack does this so they have these big vats of urine there's all these disasters and they're getting burned 
Anyways, they're getting burned up. Uh, they have to have this endless supply of urine from animals and, and humans. They need to have a constant fire going to keep it keep it working. But anyways, they eventually uh, create enough phosphorus to essentially create like bombs. But Stevens has a lot of fun with uh, just the precarious nature of this whole operation. Quote, for the most part, it actually went this way, but... What made it interesting were the mishaps. Every splash or spill remained visible as a pool, burst, or dribbling trail of cold fire. Jack got some splash on a forearm and did not notice it until he went and stood by the bottle simmering place for a few minutes. The warmth shining from the bed of coals dried the damp place on his arm, leaving a fine layer of phosphorus that burnt into unquenchable flame. Many had similar stories. stories. Presently, most of them were naked, having frantically stripped off clothing when it was pointed out to them by excited spectators that they were glowing. Just the... Phosphorus is pretty awesome uh, stuff, actually. There's a really famous, uh, I don't know, maybe it's not super famous, but it's a painting by, uh, what's that dude's name? The guy who did all the science paintings in the 18th, 19th century England. Anyway, I had to look him up. Joseph Wright of Derby, right? So there's this uh, painting he did of this alchemist playing around with phosphorus. What's the name of it? Alchemist Henning Bren looks focused, maybe a bit drained in this 1795 painting by Joseph Wright. Uh, I don't know the name of the painting, but anyways, you can find it if you look up Joseph Wright of Derby. He was actually late, eight, eight, late 18th century painting, but he did all these weird science paintings, which I think must have inspired Gil Stevenson a little bit, because if you remember back in like book one, there's all those violence against animals. He Derby did a, or Joseph Wright of Derby did a painting where there's an experiment where they put a bird in a enclosed container and then they suck out the oxygen, right, to see how long it lives. That experiment is actually described here where they have a, it's where they have like a mouse and a flame and they drain out the oxygen to see what goes first. Uh, the, and it turned out it was the mouse that died before the fire. Um, but anyways, it's a, it's a great painting uh, showing just the, the glowing nature of, of elemental phosphorus. You can understand why the alchemists loved it so much. So anyways, this is all just to create like weapons that they can use when they travel to Delhi to scare off the bandits and win a, win a battle against them. And and that's what happens. So they, they def this cabal, mostly reunited by this point uh, through Jack's kind of leadership and surrender nuts kind of backing, they... they create this phosphorus and they use it as weapons and bombs and things to clear the path to to Delhi from these Maratha bandits. Now, that's how sort of the section ends. We're going to pick up again with Jack um, probably next episode, I guess. Yeah, it's definitely be next episode. Three years later. Um, and because of this, he becomes, he's granted basically a kinship in southern India in some rural area. And that's going to be really important for the next kind of stage of his story. But think about it. He's spending essentially six years in India, like a huge chunk of his life. Now, we don't get a whole lot of detail about it, but a huge chunk of his life is being spent in India. This whole this whole story, you know, it starts seven, uh, sorry, 1690, 1689, essentially. So when we pick up all the way, he doesn't get back to Europe till till 1702. So like a third of his life is this voyage around the world. And about half of that is spent simply kind of hanging out in 
in India doing various things. Much of it was a three-year stint as a king in southern in southern India. Um, so there could have been a lot more, but these, these books are long enough, right? But there could have been a lot more said about this, but he gives us enough. But it's, um, it's, this part of the book has a lot of time jumping. In fact, the whole second half of Confusion zips through about 10 years of, of history more quickly than I think any other part of the book does. There, there's jumps, but uh, a lot of zipping around. Because I, I think um, really what's important from this point on is Jack getting back to to England, uh, getting back to Europe, uh, and the further adventures of the Cabal. Um, Eliza becoming more engaged, I guess, in continental natural philosophy through her relationship with Leibniz and her tutoring of, of Princess Caroline of Ansbach. And, and I guess Daniel's just giving up on, on England, right? That's, I guess, the other subplot. I think that's what we get into now, is that part. So I'm going to finish up pretty early today because I, I guess I picked a shorter, shorter section and it's, um, I guess, not that much to say about a lot of this part, but that's okay. We pick up with, uh, with Roger and Daniel um, in 1693. So around the same time as Jack fooling around with, with phosphorus in India, you have uh, Daniel and Roger Comstock, the Marquis of Ravenscuff, and Mrs. Bly's Coffee House in London. Once again, another scene of, of Roger and Daniel sitting around drinking coffee. He is quite addicted by this point in the story, it seems. So Daniel's saying, basically, I'm gonna to go to I'm gonna to go to Massachusetts. I'm done with this. Right? And Roger's like, no, no, you gotta you gotta stay and do some stuff for us. Eventually you'll go to Massachusetts. And not only that, I will give you a sinecure. Essentially, I'll institute a college, and you'll run it. And basically, it'll just be for you to sit around and do your natural philosophy. If you have a student, great. But basically, you'll be uh, that. But yeah, I'm part of this junkto now. I'm basically part of the running the government, right, the, the, for the Whigs. So this is like the beginning of party politics in England, and you got the Tories and the Whigs. And that's already sort of been talked about a little bit in the book, how like the Tories back things up with with a land bank and the Whigs prefer something that they're, they're going to be in the process of creating called the Bank of England. Actually, I think that's later that that distinction is made, but it starts here, right? So Raven, Ravenscar says to Daniel, I'm changing things here. Like the first thing we're going to do is we're going to create a Bank of England, right? And it's not just going to be uh, Apthor's bank, right? That's what happened before is you had, did have new banks to replace like the house of ham that were more modern, more visibly modern, but, uh, Ravenscar and the Junkto want to go farther and create an actual Bank of England, right? Which would be money would be backed by British commerce. This is in contrast to the Tories who want land banks backed by the land, right? Because the Tories, their powers in the land. That's where they see the value in society as in the productive capacity of land, while the Whigs are more likely to see it in foreign commerce and trade and East India Company or eventually like the British get a lot of the slave trade. Uh, that comes in the next volume, but that's there too. And that's going to back up this British currency, right? And that's going to eventually be what wins out. Like Newton's going to use cur like trade to push out bad currency to leave the gold guinea, which with which a more secure foundation. 
Um, but anyways, this is the beginning of it. So this is actually a pretty important section in, in the, the narrative about banking and finance uh, in, in England at this time. And then he says, okay, I'll, I'll send you, if you want to leave Europe, go to Massachusetts, fine, but I need you to do something first. I need natural philosophers in this government and in creating these new institutions. So I want you to create, uh, I want you to recruit him, him being Isaac Newton, to run the mint. And of course, this is really what happened, right? Newton ran, helped establish the, the modern British mint. And Daniel doesn't want anything to do with this. They broke up a long time ago. They barely talk. You know, they just cross paths once in a while. But Ravenscar says, this is the price you're going to pay for getting your sinecure and going to Massachusetts. Is you're going to have to recruit Isaac Newton for this job. And there's another kind of little scene here at the coffee house, wh which shows how contentious party politics would be. Is that there's a, like a hardcore Tory guy who rips off the ears of wigs, visible wigs. This kind of breaks up their meeting because... This guy's ripping off ears of wigs, and Daniel and Ravenscar look like wigs. He's not going to, I guess, mess with a, with a high-ranking, important, connected people like them. But if you're a low-level low wig, you might get your ear bitten off by this kind of, this, this sort of like local political terrorist. But it's, it's a little fun scene. But anyways, um, then Daniel goes to meet the Junkdo. So he meets, like, Apthorpe is there who we met way back in the first book. Um, and who else is there? Is Peeps? Peeps is still hanging around, I think. So eventually Daniel gets his way over to to uh, to meet up with uh, John Locke, Newton, and Faccio, who are all hanging out together doing their alchemy stuff. And Daniel has to sort of sweet talk Newton into this. So the whole point of this is to get Newton to to head the mint and he sort of sweet talks him here he says uh i know you have torn alchemy down to its foundations and built it back up in a recording in a book called praxis which will be to alchemy what principia mathematica was to physics and perhaps tis hoped that in the combination with some new reading of scripture from faccio here and new philosophy from locke there and a reworking of christianity on Arian principles from your disciples scattered around europe it should all come together in a grand unifying discourse a kind of scientific apocalypse in which the whole universe and all people and all history should be made clear as distilled water. Um, and Newton kind of takes this as an insult that he's kind of, uh, uh, you know, oversimplifying what their what their ambition is. But basically, Daniel makes his formal case to Newton why he should head the mint. He basically says he 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 knows about Jack Shafto robbing the Solomonic gold. And so the same, Newton's going to say the same thing back to Daniel, like 20 years later. He's going to say, this is why I did it. But actually it was Daniel's idea, it seems, to say, you by controlling the mint are going to be in the center of the global commerce and the global money supply. And you'll be able to get your hands on the Solomonic gold at some point because it's all going to go through, through London, right? And you're going to control really the alchemy that matters, right? The, and I think that's a theme of this text. This entire series is something that Marx, of course, understood is like the alchemy of, of, of currency, of money, how money can train, change into anything through this global networks of commerce, right? We see Eliza do it to, to basically scam uh, the House of Hackelhaber. Uh, we've seen it uh, again and again in this book, right? How money is sort of a fiction. Um, 
and but it's infinitely convertible to anything else and this is essentially the alchemy of money the alchemy of cap of capitalism um and this is how daniel makes his case to to newton because if you want to really do alchemy this is where the this is where it is at and so you should do it and it he does convince him and i think faccio and Locke are kind of throwing insults but newton says no he's right and i'm going to do this and Daniel sees it as a success in the sense of getting Newton off of this kind of bottomless pit of, of alchemical studies, right? Um, Locke says to him, like, you, what you did was necessary, but he'll never be the same. And Daniel says, you're right. He'll merely be the most successful natural philosopher in all of history, which is a better thing than to be a false messiah. It'll take him years to get used to this new station in the world. By the time he is himself again, I'll be out of his reach in Boston, Massachusetts. And in fact... It is going to be 20 years or so before they, they cross paths again. It's not going to be till 1713 that they actually become friends. He doesn't quite go to Massachusetts immediately after convincing them to run the Mint. He spends some time on the continent. He meets up with Leibniz, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But basically, he's done with England at this point. He's done with the politics. He's done with uh, it until Enoch Roofed, the wizard, shows up and tells him you gotta you gotta go there and and back again go back to london go back to your home and it's i think at first i was i didn't like that when i first read this book i'm like why do you have this time jump there's so much interesting stuff during the war of the spanish secession but it it does allow daniel to be a bit of a rip van winkle coming back to to london after 20 years seeing the changes in terms of politics and in commerce and and religion and almost every area of life immigration you know, London is totally different than it was in 1693 and certainly since 1666. Not entirely. There's still remnants of the old, but it's radically changed. Um, so having him go to to Massachusetts and just time jumping actually works pretty well, um, I think, for the story. All right. Not much more to say about this episode, uh, about this section of the book, actually, except we get a handful of letters between Rosignol and Eliza Ponchantrons involved, too. Um, and this, it's not really about Eliza so much. I think this is actually kind of our goodbye to Rosignol. I think, uh, he, he kind of falls away from the story too. It's, it's maybe, I don't know if that's a criticism of the book. I don't think you need this. Like, I suppose a lot of novels these days, writing These big, long epics, multi-volume epics will make a dramatic point of each character's departure. You know, Stevenson, he just has them go away, uh, or die off screen or something. Um, but that's how life is, right? But what this is about, this is our, our hint. This is, and this is connecting the two. This is why Stevenson had to split up these books and the way he does is because the, the timeline's so important. I mean, you could probably figure it out, but you'd always be flipping back and forth between pages to, to keep track and checking for dates. This makes it clear as you read it. Um, but it's all about the Esfanians and especially Reg Esfanian, the one who's in the cabal with Jack, that Rosignol's been intercepting letters between... Um, the Esfanians in Paris and Vrij Esfania in, in Cairo or North Africa or wherever they end up being, right? Wherever he is at the time. And the Esfanians are kind of connected all over the world. Now he's got, there's a cipher because he says the letters are kind of boring and not really interesting, not worth sending. So there must be a cipher. I don't know if it's here. I think it's a little bit later in the story that the cipher is broken by Rosignol. It involves like a basically an invisible ink that they write and then they write over it the boring letter. 
Um, but uh, you know, it's also in Armenian, it's a language he doesn't he has to learn and and study. But basically, he knows that they're somehow connected to the Solomonic gold and the Jack Shafto uh, heist, which again, it, like the world sees this as Jack Shafto's heist, right? But by the end of the story, and this is something Jack even says at the end of the confusion, like, oh, this has been Vrej's story the whole time. It's not been mine at all. Which is, um, uh, but it's it's hinted at here that there's some other le- level of conspiracy involving these Armenians, um, who are who are all over the world, planted all over the world. You have this all th- all these networks of family connections. I guess it's a that's a, I guess that's another theme of this book, right? Of these books is how commerce creates networks right um but so do families and and migrations and people moving around and different communities it's going to be the same with like the raskulniks they're going to have people in london and religion forms networks around the world it's it's uh what's what's the word for these the study of world history they they sometimes use this anyways i forgot the name of it but world historians uh will talk about um you know, things like monasteries, right? And of course, a lot of people study European history know how monasteries had a connection. They had a common language, traditions across Europe, kind of creating connections, right? But Buddhist monasteries did that in, a, in even a more global sense. Eventually, with the spread of Christianity in the modern era, Christian monasteries and communities would do this. So the world gets connected through institutions. And those could be families. It could be diasporas. It could be, uh, you know, companies like the VOC or the East India Company or the Compito du Noir, whatever it is, right? It's, it's create, and it's not, like, if you want to move away from a state-centered world history, you can do that by looking at these kind of institutions, right? And the Armenians here are definitely presented as, as that kind of thing. It's a lot of fun. Um, but we're, we're kind of being, it's, he's tinting here that there's another level of the story of, about the, the gold and uh, connected to Vraja Esfanian. Um, so that's it. Um, so that's all I'm going to say. I, I guess I'm out of stuff to talk about for this part of the book. In the next episode, I'll look at pages 521 to 676, which basically um, uh, we got uh, Eliza going to Germany uh, and meeting Caroline. Um, she's going to have another great moment here where she, she knocks off... Uh, an elector with smallpox he really did die i mean there really is this elector who died around the same time as his mistress um and she she basically eliza gets smallpox and she sleeps she has a threesome with them and gives them smallpox and they die right and she survived eliza survives but she does this because they're kind of that elector sort of given weird gazes to caroline who's like 11 or 10 at the time or something so you get that little uh fun little story uh, a little bit more on that on on von Hackelhabers and and Eliza and them. Then we get Jack's further adventures in India. Um, and then uh, oh, and then and then we f- kind of finish up Bob's story at least temporarily. Leibniz meets uh, Peter the Great. A lot of different stuff going on. So, yeah, it'll be pages 521 to 676. It'll be the second to last episode covering uh, the confusion. So I guess I, I knew this would be a shorter episode, and it was. That's good. Um, but the next one I probably will have a little bit more to say about. So hopefully you're enjoying re- this read-along of 
of the Baroque cycle. And if you have anything to add about this part of the story, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Don't have to bother correcting me on the genealogy stuff and the politics and the families. That's never been my specialty in history. Um, but, you know, it, it's kind of right on some level. I, I understand it in some level of my brain, but it's, it's not always on the forefront. All these, you know, if you remember all these family connections and genealogies of kings and stuff, you don't have, you're not going to even remember like how to like bake cookies or the, 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 your, your parents' phone number. It'll just be pushed out by all that garbage, right? Which is kind of impressive. These aristocrats and like King Louis XIV understood all this and knew all these connections, but that was his whole full time job, I guess. So, anyways, that's all I'm going to talk about for now. Uh, see you next time. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.